welcome to the Destination Begin podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Smith. I've lost over 250 pounds. I've started my life over multiple times and managed to find humor, lessons, and joy in the process. And now I'm here sharing those stories with you. Thanks for joining me. Hi, hi. Welcome to the podcast. It's a really special episode today, and it's a very long one. But I am going to start out by telling you a couple things, a little announcement here. I have started a book club in my Facebook group. So I have a Facebook group called The Christian Experience, and it's a free Facebook group. And in that group, I'm going to be reading Alan Carr's Quit Emotional Eating the Easy Way book. Now, Alan Carr has... Many, there's many iterations of his book. I've talked about it on the podcast now quite a few times. But his first book, um, Quit Smoking Without Willpower, The Easy Way Method, has helped millions of people stop smoking. And then they made a quick drinking version, which I read. And I crossed out drinking and, and changed it to eating and changed alcohol to junk food. And then I found out he had an iteration that they already did that for me. Um, so Alan Carr's Quit Emotional Eating Without Willpower. So I'm doing a book club. And so if you'd like to be in this book club, all you have to do is grab the book, join the free Facebook group. And then this week on Tuesday, which is August 22nd, I'm going to be just posting a video kind of going through chapter one. I'm going to post the video. You're welcome to leave comments. We're going to do a little discussion there. And then on a Friday, the 25th, again, another video about chapter two. So two chapters this week, you have plenty of time to get the book and read two chapters by Friday. They're quick, little easy chapters. Um, Chapter one and two total um, is, let's see, it goes to page 36, but there's also the forward. So they're about, you're going to read about 30 pages. They're big print. So it's really eye-opening. If you commit to read this book from start to finish, I guarantee you that your relationship with anything that you struggle with addiction-wise, whether it's drinking, smoking, sugar, um, popcorn, <laughs> candy, anything, you're going to find amazing um, truth and the way that you can get these things out of your life for good without white knuckling it, which is what I have found with my experience with sugar and also alcohol. I drank a teeny little bit before, but now I um, I don't drink. I never will again. I don't eat junk food and sweets. I never will again. And it's not hard. This book is that powerful. So just want to make that little announcement because it's relevant right now. So And if you're listening to this later, you can still grab the book, start reading it, and you'll be able to find the videos in the Facebook group and read up on kind of my commentary and thoughts from a coach perspective and a personal perspective and also leave your comments. So this week on the podcast, um, I sat down with my husband, with Roy. We've done a couple podcasts together where we've talked about his marathon experience and how we met and moving to Miami. And he's alluded to the things that he's been through in his life. And as you'll hear, he talks about how he's always been rather closed book. And I asked him if he had the courage to tell his whole story. And he wants to tell his story to really help people understand that it doesn't matter where you come from and what your first story is. You can choose to write a new story, even if you're almost 50 years old. But the first time you tell your life story when it's full of emotional, painful memories, it can be really daunting. And it can be really hard to find the words. And I did my best in this conversation to kind of guide him through it, but I mainly listened and I was going to edit it. 
I pulled up the first half of this to edit it and there were chunks I found, okay, I could pull that out, I could shorten that, but I really wanted to leave it because I want you to hear the trajectory of this conversation because it's real. If we had re-recorded this or I had edited a whole bunch, it would have been fine. He's going to get really good at telling his story, but the beauty of this is he's a human being, a common human being who has a story that is not unlike others. There are things in his life that are very uncommon, um, but the common thread is pain and the common thread is life on life's terms and cruel, unfair circumstances and regret. And to hear him tell it, it's a beautiful emotional story and I, I just couldn't edit it down. So I hope you will listen. I hope you will bear with the first few minutes when he's just kind of getting going um, and settle in because the story is redemptive and powerful and beautiful. And I'm excited for you to hear the emotion and to hear his heart and to hear why I fell in love with him and had to have him and marry him and partner with him to light up the world together. So I hope you listen. I hope you enjoy um, this is a long episode, so you're going to want to listen to it when you've got some time or just come back to it, um, have some tissues ready, and um, get ready to fall in love with this wonderful, beautiful soul, and listen for how this relates to your life and how you can use his story to write your second story, too. Without further ado, welcome, Rye. Thank you. So it's going to be weird to interview him, especially because I know all the things. Um, but I'm just going to start out with what you're probably all wondering in podcast land is, why are you here to tell your story? What do you want to accomplish with telling your story? Oh, well, I thought a lot about that. And, uh, you know, for most of my life, I... Uh, I was a closed book. You know, I've been, as you know, I've been through a lot of, a lot of stuff in my life. And, uh, but no, I was always really protective of myself. And, you know, there's people that I've known for a long, long time, coworkers and friends that, you know, didn't know half, half of my story or really, you know, not much at all. I just, I would give them whatever was on the surface and that was, that was it. And, uh, I don't know. I think it, it was just, it was just always scary to uh, to face a lot of things, so I just I just kind of protected myself over the years and just kept it you know close to my close to my heart. And uh, I just feel like it's, I feel like it's time. You know, I'm I'm on this path for for healing and you know changing a lot of things. And I feel like this is a, this is a uh, the big thing to to share with with the world and share with with uh, with other people, you know, the things that I've been through, and I feel like it was it'll go a long way with with the healing process. Yeah, when we tell our stories, often the person that's healed first is ourselves. I know doing this podcast has I've learned a lot about myself and been able to step out of some of the story into the next chapter of my life because I was able just to tell it. So you may find that that's true as well. So why don't we start from the beginning? Just give us a little background about little Roy. Where were you born and what was your family like? Oh, we're going to start way back. We're going to start okay. there. It's your life story. All right. Well, um, let's see. I was born 
October 10, 1973, in Lodi, California. There was a song written called Stuck in Lodi by the band Creed's Clearwater, and it was about them traveling to a show, and their bus broke down in this little tiny town called Lodi. So they wrote a song about it while they're waiting for their bus to be fixed. So that's, that's, that's all anybody knows really knows about Lodi. Um, I, I have five or four siblings. My mother, um, my mother gave birth to me and my twin brother when I was 16 years old Thanks. or when she was 16 years old, not me. Was, that would have been terrible. They'd be pregnant yeah, with a 16 year old. It'd be painful. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother, um, my mother was pregnant and married by the time she was 14. She had my older brother when she was 15, and then me and my twin brother when she was 16, and my sister when she was 18, remarried, and had my little baby brother, Nick, when she was 21. So at 21 years old, she'd been married twice and had five kids. It's insane. I don't know how she, yeah. how she did it. I don't know either. I, I couldn't handle one or two kids. I can barely <laughs> handle you. I can barely handle me. <laughs> um, yeah, so we grew up in uh, grew up in Central California, a lot, uh, a lot of farm areas, and, and then uh, also some urban areas as well. Uh, my my mother and my biological father had separated and divorced uh, when I was probably four years old. I want to say, and then my mom met my stepfather soon after. He was in law enforcement, um, and uh, he he raised us. We 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 considered him father or dad, so we called him dad. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was he was tough. He was you know he loved us a lot. Um, but he was really tough. He you know he he had a tough tough upbringing himself and, and uh, didn't have a lot of uh, examples on how to parent. Mm. Um, he did his best, um, but it was tough. And, you know, and also being law enforcement, it kind of jades you over the years and makes you tough. So he was tough on his kids, but you know, we loved him. We loved him a lot. He, my father, my dad, or my stepfather passed away when I was 19 years old. He, he um, succumbed to cancer, liver and stomach cancer. Um, he, uh, yeah, so it, it was tough. It was really hard. So that's, that's something that a lot of people didn't know about, you know, that what I went through with my father and him passing, because that was, that was a hard time in my life. Um, right around that same time, I, uh, I don't know which, which way to segue into things, but, um. Well, so, but growing up, going back a little bit, yeah. growing up, what's life like with a mom and all these little kids? Yeah. My stepdad, you guys lived in a trailer park, didn't have much money. Yeah. Your dad was really, really tough. You guys were a bunch of scrawny, poor little kids. You know, what do you remember about your childhood in that <sighs> setting? Yeah, I mean, I remember, I felt, I felt like, for a long period of time, I felt like our childhood was normal. Um, it just, it was normal to us. So, I, you know, I remember a lot of happy moments. I remember dancing and music, and I remember, 
playing board games with the family. I remember going camping a lot. You know, so we had a lot of good memories like that. There was also bad memories, but there was a lot of good ones. So. And having a twin, I mean, yeah. that's pretty rare to be an identical twin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Me, me and my twin brother, Rich, uh, we're, it's funny. When we get together, even now, or when we talk, it's almost like we revert to little kids and we just yes, like, do. we like pick on each other like we're little kids and it's the weirdest thing. And I don't have that kind of relationship with anybody. Yeah, it's weird and annoying. <laughs> I know, I'm sure it is. No, but I love them to death and, and uh you know, we're like best friends. We we you know, and it's not like how people people always ask is like, do you finish each other's sentences? Do you share the same brain waves and all that stuff? And no, we don't. But, uh, you know, when we were kids, you know, we would kind of finish each other's sentences because we had the same sense of humor. So we'd finish each other's stories a lot. I mean, we did pretty much everything together. So yeah. we had the same story. At what point in time did you both stop being funny, though? Oh, uh, that's... that's <laughs> why do you... What? <laughs> Roy thinks he's very funny and Rich thinks he's even funnier and neither one of them are funny at all. We'll never stop being funny. No, you'll never start being, being funny. Okay. Anyway, so part of the reason of telling our stories, so like my childhood, homeschooled, mm -hmm. kind of weird, you know, isolated, and the things that happen in your brain because of that. So my belief system as a kid was that I was only lovable if I was good, and that um, that I wasn't beautiful, I was smart, and I just needed to be smart and good. And then I was valid and I, you know, had to suffer yeah. and all those things. And so those mantras really shaped my adulthood, which I've talked about here. So what kind of messaging were you raised with subconsciously um, that you feel like impacted what you went after, what you accomplished as you got into teenage and adult years? Yeah. Um... Remember you saying you got picked on a lot in school? Yeah, we got picked on a lot in school. And part of it was uh, a lot of the things that I, that I felt about myself that I'm not really sure where they came from, if it came from my home life, if it came from kids at school or what, whatever. But uh, with my dad's job, he, you know, we moved a lot. And whenever, whenever I say my dad, it's my stepdad. He raised me. So that's whenever I'm talking about him throughout this story that's what I'm talking about um so with his job he, you know we get trans transferred a lot or promotions so we would move all the time I and mean, most of the time we're we moved every year just about so we we're always in a new school always a new kid so everywhere we went we were just these awkward new kids and you know we didn't have a lot of money so poor clothes so kids always picked on us um all the time we were just always the awkward kids so uh I don't know. I always, I never, never liked myself. I never felt like I was good enough for anything. I always felt like no matter what I did, um, it was never good enough or people were going to figure me out or I'm a fraud and I'm ugly. I felt, I just felt dumb. Um, you know, all those things that a lot of, a lot of kids go through, you know, um, kids in school are, they're brutal. They're, you know, there's a lot of bullies, and uh, so uh, it was tough. And you know, we didn't really stand up for ourselves. I don't know. Nick, Nick was the only one who really did, or Jay did sometimes too. But me and Rich, we were just like, I don't know, we were scared little kids. We just let people bully us and pick on us. We wouldn't fight back, and 
Um, I'm not sure where that part came from, but hmm. that's, that's how I always felt. Um, you know, not just in childhood, but even in my adult life. And I think that's what kind of stunted my growth uh, career-wise or educational and all that stuff. Because like, if, if you don't put yourself out there and you don't try, then you can't fail. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's true. So. So pivotal moments as you became a teenager. So a couple of the things, you know, there's a couple of big life things that you allude to that you don't really talk about a lot that I feel like are kind of the keys in in telling your story, which, you know, is emotional. And obviously I'm not going to tell you how to say it, but, you know, as a teenager, we think about, all right, big life events that kind of started shaping the trajectory of your life and what you believed was in store for you in life. So I guess start there. Yeah, uh, I gotta kind of be careful about some of the things I say. Um, but you mentioned your your father passed away, your stepdad, and that. How old were you at night? I was nineteen. Um, that was yeah. That so that was uh. Uh, that, yeah, that was that was a pivotal moment in my life. Um, <clears throat> you know, before my dad passed away, and when I was younger, like me and my dad were really close. You know, I don't know he had like a special liking to me. I was a goofy little kid. I had wear glasses, and I had like I was cross-eyed. I looked really special, so <laughs> he, he took a liking to me early on because of that. And uh, we were, you know. We were close. I love I love my dad a lot. But then um you know, as we got older, um, we grew apart. There were some things that happened and um I don't know what I should be saying, but my my dad, uh, when I was probably about fifteen years old, he, he started seeing another woman and uh moved out for a while and it, it, it was really hard. Like we, you know, we had to sit at home and w- watch mom cry a lot. And, um, and I just, you know, I didn't know what to, I didn't, I didn't know how to handle that stuff or deal with it. And, and I started cutting school a lot and just rebelling and drinking. And I was just so angry and, uh, so angry at my father, you know, cause he, he would leave to go to, so basically what happened was, you know, we lived in Central California in Stockton, which is near Lodi. Um, and my dad got a job transferred to the Bay Area near San Francisco. So it was be about a two-hour drive to work. So instead of moving the whole family over there, they decided for him to get an apartment and then stay over, stay over there during the week and then come home on the weekends. So he was doing that for a while, and then after you know, after a while, he he met somebody and started having an affair, and and uh, you know, my mom just loved the crap out of my dad so much, so much to so much that that she she loved him so much, and she loved herself so little mm. that she would just take. Just take it. She would take whatever scraps she could. He was he was gonna give give her, 
So even though she was well aware of the affair and she would get him on weekends once in a while, that, that type of thing, you know, and then he would leave and then we'd hear her crying in, in her bedroom yeah. and there was nothing we could do about it. So, so, you know, with all that going on, you know, me and my dad became estranged and I was rebellious and I hated him. I was so angry. Like, how could you, you know, how could you do this to us, to, to mom? Um, so that was around 15, 16. I, you know, I moved out. I was, I, I moved out when I was 16. I wanted to stay in Stockton with my girlfriend because I was in love and you guys don't understand. I can't be away from her. <laughs> um, so for some reason, they let me go back and stay in Stockton while they lived in the Bay Area. And I, you know, rented a room and got a job, quit school. Um, you know, did that for a while. And then eventually I, I uh, you know, and I didn't talk to my parents for like probably a good, almost a year during that time. Mm. You know, and there was some other stuff that, that, went, that happened. Um, and then eventually when I was 17, I reconnected with them. I don't know, I don't remember how I ran into them somewhere for some reason, I think. And then I asked if I could come back home <laughs> and they said yes. So I moved back in with them at 17. Um, and finished high school, and then, uh, yeah, like a year later, my dad started uh, having some pains, um, and it was going on for a couple weeks, and then went and had it checked out, and found out it was terminal cancer, and nine months later, he's he's gone. You know, just like that, and it was it was so hard for me that uh, you know, I always knew my dad as this really tough strong man didn't he didn't need any anybody he he's a, you know a caregiver and uh i just i couldn't watch him deteriorate i could not watch i couldn't watch him um so you know i, I stayed away you know i stayed i stayed away and if if i wasn't there it wasn't happening you know mm. if i didn't see it it wasn't happening and I was a mess, man. I was like, uh, I was couch surfing in people's houses. I didn't know, I didn't know what was going on with me. I didn't understand it. I was, I was stealing from people and left and right, and just wearing out my welcome wherever somebody would let me come stay with them. And then uh, I don't know. That was like my way of rebelling or coping. It was like it was like, it was weird. It was like a drug. I don't know. I don't, even now looking back, I just. It was a distraction. Everything that I was doing was a distraction, you know? Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I, I avoided it. I avoided it as much as I could. You know, I stayed away, stayed away, stayed away, stayed away. And then I remember, I remember the day it happened. And, uh, I was sitting, I was staying with a friend somewhere and mom had, my mom had called me and she just, and she said, Roy, I think, I think it's time for you to come home. And I, so just something, something clicked. And I just like, all of a sudden it became real. And I just remembered, I ran, I put the phone down and I just ran. And it was, it was probably about, uh, I don't know, five miles away to get to where they were. And I didn't have a car at the time. And I just remember it was pouring rain outside. 
This was Thanksgiving. Um, and I just ran as fast as I could. I don't even remember stopping. I just ran, just ran as fast as I could. And I just remember, I just remember pleading with God, pleading with him. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I wasn't there. I'm so sorry. Please, 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 please. Just let me get there before he's gone. Just let me say goodbye. Just let me say goodbye. I'm so sorry. I'll do whatever you want. Please. So, uh, yeah, so I get there and, uh, so funny. I mean, I've told this part of the story so many times and it's never easy. And that was how, how many years ago? 30, yeah. 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Um, and it's still, you know, when I talk about it now, it still feels like, I'm there, like when it when it happened. Um, so I ran as fast as I could, pleading with God the whole way. Um, I get there and the, I don't know if I knocked on the door, just opened it, but I mom mom opened the door <clears throat> and she looked at me and smiled and said, "Hi, honey." So when she smiled, then. I, you know, I'm, in my head, I'm like making up excuses like, oh, well, oh, maybe she's smiling. Like, maybe that means everything's fine. So, I, you know, she wasn't crying. So I walked in and then, you know, towards the end, oh, when my dad was deteriorating, deteriorating hospice came in and brought a, a hospital bed in there and put it in the living room for him to be comfortable in there. Um, so that's where it had been for a while. So when I, w I walked to the front door, I remember, I walked straight ahead, and the living room was off to the left. And I turned the corner, and the hospital bed wasn't there anymore. So, again, I'm rationalizing in my, rationalizing in my head. Oh, the hospital bed's gone. Well, maybe that means he's getting better, and maybe they just took him to the hospital to, to, you know, to a regular room or something, or he's just better. So I, I looked at mom and I said, where, where's dad? And she just looks at me and she just said, he's gone, honey. <laughs> mm. Oh man, I can't. I didn't say a word. I didn't say anything. I just turned around and I ran out of the house and I ran and I ran and I ran. Screamed, and I was just so angry. I was so angry. You know, and that haunted me for a long, long time. It still does. But for years, I would have the same dream over and over again. And it was, well, there's a couple of them, but the, the, the main one was kind of like the same scenario where, like, I have to get to them. And I would just run and run and run to try to get to him in time. And every time I'm just short of getting to him. <clears throat> so I had that dream for a, while, for a lot of years. So, and I, you know, I held a, there's a lot of guilt, <clears throat> a lot of guilt for just not being there, not being able to tell him I love him, not being able to, to tell him I forgive him, all that stuff, you know? 
you know, the reason, and years later, looking back on, you know, why my mom didn't have a tear in her eye when that happened was they were there the whole time. They, they had to watch him deteriorate all the, all that time. They had to pick him up, take him to the bathroom, clean him up. So they, it wasn't new to them. Like they, they, they had gone through it with him, you know? So, you know, they're, you're just numb at that point. You know, um, so yeah, that was that. That was uh, probably the first pivotal moment in my in my life that changed things. How do you reconcile that now? Like, how do you find peace with that now? Or what? What would you say to somebody else who has guilt? I mean, like that's something I can't even can't relate to in the same way, but. That's something that can derail your life forever when yeah. you feel like you really weren't there in a key moment and you can't fix it. It's it's tough. I mean, uh, you know, I've thought a lot about that over over the over the years, and it's still hard. It's still hard. I mean, it's getting easier now, but um, you know, everybody processes things differently. <laughs> Everybody has different life experiences and they process pain and loss and love and everything completely differently. And, and I was 19 years old, man. First, first real time I've had to deal with, you know, losing somebody important to me. I, I mean, I, I had no idea how to, how, to, how to process any of that stuff. And, uh, yeah, coping mechanisms, coping skills, yeah. you know, those are things you either pick up or you don't, or they're taught to you or they're not, or you're just fighting for survival, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, so that was that. That was my first main pivotal. Um, I knew that was going to alter my, my life forever. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's moments in your life where you know you know that, there's no coming back from this, and this is going to pivot your life. That was that was one of them. That was the first one, you know. So then you were, at that point in time, you were in Stockton. Is this when you were in, and then you spent time in church? You spent time in yeah. youth groups? So I, I started, yeah, I, I got really heavy into the church uh, around 15, I think. And that was, a, that was kind of around the time when my dad was having his, his affair, and me and my my twin brother Rich, we were just like looking for something to cling on to, to you know something. So um, I don't know Rich had some kids at school, and they invited us to their church, and we started going, and we liked it. They were really nice, and um, yeah, that's how that started. And that's I, I was pretty religious. I mean, I would say for a good couple of years until I was nineteen ish, I guess. 15 to 19. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it helped me through through a lot of stuff. It helped me helped me to process, um, I think, some some things during that time and helped me to not feel alone. I had a support system. Because, you know, God love them, but, you know, when mom and dad were going through that stuff, we it seems like we were left to fend for ourselves because mom was, you know, just trying to get dad back and, they were fighting and, and all that stuff. So we were kind of left to our own devices. And uh, 
that's just that's just the way it was. Um, but yeah, so when I moved out and I moved away from them, and then that, that's when I got heavy into the church. Um, eventually, our pastor from that church took us in and and uh, helped us out, helped me and my brother out. Um, and also at that same time, I I had a girlfriend and um, we had a baby together. Yeah, just boom. So, <laughs> I was going to say, it wasn't that about the time. So at the same time, my dad passed away um, in uh, November. I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out the timeline, but it was really close together. So my dad passed away. found out my ex-girlfriend was pregnant, had a baby. Um, but we adopted her out. You know, neither one of us were in any position to to raise a baby at that at that age. You know, I was a mess. You know, so that was uh, that was also a really 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 hard thing for me. You know, I've always loved kids. I always wanted kids. Um, it was hard. I remember, uh, you know, my, my ex girlfriend didn't. Didn't you know? Wanted to put the baby up for adoption, and then I, I didn't want to. I was just like, no, I'm 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 going to keep her. You know, this no. So it was, it was a battle. We were fighting back and forth, and her parents wanted to sue me, and they hated me because I'd stole from them, and it was just, it was just a whole huge mess. So I remember I was hell bent on keeping this baby, you know, um, and she was born in premium. She was only she was only two. Two and a half pounds when she was born. There's a lot of complications, and and uh, she shouldn't even even have been born. I don't remember what the condition that my ex girlfriend had, but basically they they were saying that uh, she has a fifty fifty percent chance of my ex girlfriend not surviving the pregnancy if she would to carry it to full wow. term, and even if she did survive that, the baby wouldn't would have a lot of complications and a lot of problems. And, wow. Um, but you know, we left it up to God. We were both, you know, religious people, and and uh, you know, she decided to have the baby, even though we're going to go up for adoption. So wow. yeah, so Annika was born two and a half pounds, and uh, so she had to stay in. The, but she was healthy. She was just she was a preemie. So I, I literally. Put her in my hand, one hand, just like this. That's how, <laughs> how how tiny she was. So she had to stay in the hospital for uh, you know probably a good month just to, until she was weight enough to where it was okay for her to leave. When I saw when I saw her for the first time, I went to go visit her. The first time I held her in my arms, I just knew I knew. Oh, you, you can't keep her. <laughs> I knew, I knew that. I knew when she looked at me, <laughs> I could never give her the life that she deserved. Mm. So it was hard. So I went to visit her every day at the hospital. Every single day, because I knew soon enough I wouldn't be able to ever see her again. So I, so I would take the bus into San Francisco every day, hour and a half bus ride each way and I go visit with her and I spend time with her you know and I met the the uh 
adoptive parents. It was kind of like an open adoption. So we got to vet them and have dinner with them and, you know, kind of interview them and talk to them and get to know who they were. So, uh, yeah, so then when she was able to, to leave the hospital, we, we were allowed to have one last visit, and it was, um, it was me, my mom, my little brother, Nick, and we went over to the adoption counselor's house because that's where the baby was. Because um, it's, you know, neutral ground or whatever. So, so we were able to go there and spend a couple hours and say goodbye, and it was the last time I saw her. Yeah, she just had a birthday, too. She turned 30, right? 30. Yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah, August 10th. Crazy, man. But yeah, so that happened around right around the same time that my dad had passed. And I was just, man, I was such a mess. And, you know, my ex-girlfriend's parents hated me because I, you know, I robbed them. Like, that's when I was going through all this stuff with my dad dying. I was like, I was robbing. I was shoplifting, robbing people. And I don't know why. All I can think of, I, I didn't need the money. I didn't, it was like, it was like a drug. It was like some way of distracting myself from what was really going on with me in my, in my life and losing my father and all that stuff. So, you know, you can understand why they didn't want me to raise this baby or be anywhere near their daughter. So they wanted me out of there. And they, so when they, when they found out that I was going to try to keep the, the baby, <laughs> Then they said they were gonna they wanted to press charges against me for for stealing because that was their way of you know retaliating. So and also at the time I had run into a um um a navy recruiter guy. So they were trying to recruit me into the navy, and. Uh, in my head, I'm like, yeah, this sounds perfect. I need to get the heck out of here and away from all my problems because that's what I do. I run from my problems. <laughs> Just go far away, shake out, you know, shake out the etch a sketch and start a new life. Nobody will know who you were before and your past, all that stuff. So the maybe recruiter went into, and I told him about, well, I, I'll sign up, but I have this one problem. <laughs> <laughs> so. The Navy recruiter went and uh, talked to my ex-girlfriend's parents and convinced them not to press charges. And they agreed to not press charges as long as I got the hell out of there. And they, she took me far away from them. Oh. Wow. Yeah, so I signed up for the Navy. So it's like such stark contrast <laughs> to the life you live right now where everyone that we know would take a bullet for you. It just shows that in 30 years, like who you are at 20, doesn't have anything yeah. to do with who what's possible for you and I'm jumping ahead but like sitting here next to you as a, the person that you are now you just would never imagine that any that you would steal that you would do horrible things that people would want you far far away and you know it's it's, it's amazing it's, it's still uncomfortable when I hear you say stuff like that it's you know part of the reason why it's so uncomfortable is because that part that part of me is still in there, that, that judgment that I have of myself. And, and it's, so it's hard, it's hard when I hear, like when I hear you say stuff like that. Which part? You know, about like people taking a bullet for me. Or, well, yeah, people here love you so much. Everyone that, everyone yeah. that I know that now knows you, like mm -hmm. it's annoying because they love you more than me and that wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. 
digress. Um, That's called an emotional um, segue. Segue to just pull the emotion <laughs> down a little bit here, because I, you know, I want you to be able to tell your story without like being in a total puddle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Navy. Yeah. So Navy. You know, go across across the world, far away from my problems. The farther I can get from home, the farther I'm away from losing my baby, losing my father, losing my girlfriend. Everything, my whole world being turned upside down. I just always felt like if I ran away, then all my problems would go away. You know? And so, is that true? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Lesson number one. It follows you guys. It follows you. <laughs> Running away from your problems is not a successful life oh, plan. Oh. Um, yeah, so joined the Navy. I lasted about nine months. <laughs> nine months i would have put you at about two i knowing again knowing oh you now God. i can't imagine you being like tough in the navy no You're i know i mean now there. looking back i wish i would have stayed stayed in there because i think it would have been good for me it would have been a good yeah. experience but at the time no i mean i was doing it for the wrong reason so it was never going to stick i went to through boot camp i got to go home and visit for a couple of weeks or a month away and then i had to go back and wait for my assignment and while i'm in this waiting for my assignment I you know I had to do another schooling thing for a month or something like that halfway through that part I'm just like what am I doing when I, I found out that I was going to get deployed to uh, Okinawa I'm mean, gonna have to live on an aircraft carrier for a long time and then all of a sudden just click what the hell are you doing you got to get out of here man you can't do this what what, are you, what? I live on a big boat with a bunch of guys and in Japan no no so so and at that time, what, what year was that? That was probably like 93-ish, 1993, I think. Yeah, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. So at that time, the only way you could get out of the Navy or out of the military was two ways. Either you're suicidal or you're homosexual. Oh, which one did you go so with? I chose suicidal. Oh. I didn't want anyone to think I was gay. You would, wait. You would rather people think you wanted to kill yourself than yes, that you were that gay. that was my mindset at the in time. In 1993. That is true. Back then, it was, it was that right? um, horrible for yeah. people to find out. So, you know, like, so luckily, I was able to, like, muster up feelings to go along with that. So, like, so I had to go do an eval with the therapist. And why do you, why do you feel like you want to kill yourself? So, you know, I had that, all the fresh loss of my father and stuff that I could pull the emotion from to use it as an excuse. So yeah, so they believed in, put me in a, a three-day hold, took my belt and my shoestrings so I wouldn't hang myself. I had to be in a mental hospital for three or four days. Oh my gosh. And while they evaluated me, I had to go to group sessions and there was some mentally unstable people. <laughs> well, so now I know some people that signed up to be in the military mm -hmm. and they were from rich and powerful families or they knew rich and powerful people. So in the future, if anybody enlists and you don't want to stay in, you don't always have to say that you're homosexual or suicidal. Mm -hmm. You can just have your dad call a congressman and they'll just get you out. But yes, your dad, didn't you didn't have no, a, didn't anybody who knew congressmen. Fortunately. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. I don't know anything about the military. So I'm assuming there's a lot of shame that goes along with ditching the military. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I didn't have to feel it because, you know, once I, once I was approved to get out, I didn't have to see anybody else ever again. I just packed my bags and left. So what did you tell everybody at home when you came home, though? Was that embarrassing? Um, I don't remember what I, 
I don't remember what reason I, honestly, I don't remember what reason I gave. I remember me and my mom were battling for a while because she wanted to know, because she wanted to know why I, the real reason why I got out of the military and I wouldn't tell her. It caused some problems. We got yeah. some fights about it. <laughs> I can imagine. My, I'm trying to think what happened if Stephen did that. I would be well. I wouldn't even expect Stephen to tell me. Well, I don't know. I, if, I if I can, if I can go back to my 19 year old mind, I probably just said something like I failed a course or something like that. Yeah. Or, so then, know. what? You come home back to California, and then what, do you know anybody? Has everybody moved on? All your no, high school people I mean, gone? What did you do? Yeah, when I came, I came back home. No, I was, I, you know, most of the people that I. The few people that I were friends with were people from church, and you know some of those were gone, and a lot some of those I I wasn't friends with anymore because because uh, this is the thing once once the church found out that I that I had impregnated this beautiful angel of a Christian woman. <laughs> yeah, we could do a whole podcast about this yeah. topic. So all of a sudden I was demonized, and even though it took two. Right. No, that happens all the time. Like you got her pregnant. Yeah, you were the evil the person. Guy. Clearly she didn't have anything to do with it. You're basically yeah. also a rapist right. and you impregnated her. Mm. She would never have thought to be so unholy except for you. So then, yeah. the Yeah. So all these punished. people, you know, all these people that I had reached out to when I was going through all that hard time for comfort and for a community, all of a sudden it turned on me. And I, you know, they were talking about being behind my back. Um, not just, not just, my peers, also youth leaders and, you know, pastors and stuff like that. I, you know, I'd found that some, so that broke my heart. So, so no more church for me at that point. I was done. Um, so, uh, yeah. So when I came home, I didn't have the, I didn't have any of that. You know, I had, my mother was, my mother was a mess. She, you know, she was mourning my father and, she was drinking a lot, and uh, I didn't have a pot to piss in. My brother didn't have a pot to piss in, and it's—it was almost like everybody was just trying to lick their own wounds, and we were all kind of going our separate ways to try to figure our own stuff out, and that's kind of what it felt like. Um, you know, and I was, I was, I was, you know, like I said, my problems followed me. I came home; they're still there. I'm still a mess. I still didn't. I still didn't have love. Still was just lost. You know, I couldn't keep a job. I would, I would get a job and then I would quit it after a week or I'd hop from job to job to job to job because I was just so unhappy with, with my life. And no matter what I tried, nothing was going to make me happy. And I would, you know, I would, I would just, I would get a job and then all of a sudden I, now looking back, I was depressed. But in the moment, I'm just like. Why can't you stick to a job? Like, why are you like in the middle of a job and you just bail and take off? I don't even tell anybody. And I would yeah. do that all the time. I would just like leave the job. Like, I know when we were in California, we would everywhere we went. You were like, I worked there for a week. Yeah. I worked there for a minute. Oh, I had a job no, there it, for two so weeks. So it was a running joke. My brother had an idea for a really funny joke Christmas gift. They were going to get a, like a really nice photo album, right? But instead of putting photos in all the pages of the album, it was going to be a job application from every place I had ever worked at. Again, it's just so nice to know that who you are when you're 20 doesn't have any impact on who you are when you're 50. Because that yeah. is like, you are the hardest working human I've ever known. Well, that's the thing. The most committed, the most loyal, yeah. the most dependable, reliable human ever. And to know it wasn't always that way. It's encouraging everyone. 
especially if you feel like you have a pattern that is terrible and you can't imagine breaking it. Yeah. You know, and my dad taught us really good work ethic. Like he worked our butts off. So looking back, it wasn't that because he, tra he trained us well. So it was definitely whatever I was going through. When you're 19 years old, you don't have the, the awareness to say, oh, wow, you're depressed. You, you don't know how to process the death of yeah. your father or or this incident or that incident. You've lost everything at that point. You yeah. lost your family unit. You lost your stepfather. You lost your girlfriend, your community. Yeah, you and, and, and really, and really we lost our family unit years before that. You know, when it yeah. all started, it all started unraveling. Like, I, my vision of our perfect little family unraveled when I was 15 years old. When, you know, when my dad started cheating, that's when everything unraveled. Um, that's when, like, yeah, that's when uh, stars went away. And like, you know, that's when you when uh, it's like it's like it's like when a kid first see. Well, it's not the same, but when you realize there's no such thing as Santa Claus or Tooth Fairy or Easter Bunny, like the yeah. that magic is gone, and all of a sudden you're an adult, and now you see the the reality and the problems and the pain and the alcoholism. Such and, a bummer. Yeah. So, all right. So from that point on, all the pain was over, right? Because you'd suffered enough. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I know I had that belief for a long time. Like I've suffered enough. So now the rest of the way is going to be easy. So, so tell us how it all got easier. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, that was tough. So after that, um, so my, I came back from the military and I remember I was staying with my mom when I came back from it for a minute. And, uh, you know, she was struggling with alcohol and and we were all a mess. And then we got into a fight because I wouldn't tell her, you know, the real reason why I got kicked out of the military. But she kicked, so she kicked me and my brother out. So we were homeless again. So sleeping on the streets, I had nowhere to go. Just the, you know, I had the clothes on my back and I had my, my military duffel bag. It's like this, you know, this tall. And I, I packed all my clothes in, and that's what I took with me. You know, we'd I sleep under bridges. I'd, you know, I'd break into people's boats and sleep inside their boats, or, you know, for we would sleep in the back of Rich's pickup truck in a church parking lot somewhere, and you know, so we were doing that for a while. Um, because you know, at that point, I burned all my bridges from all the nice church people and friends that wanted to help me out and let me sleep on their couch over the years um so that was rock bottom so uh that was the that was the beginning of me growing up because once you're homeless and there's no one else there to bail you out you got to figure it out yeah yeah so i you know i slept under well bed. some people still never do yeah some people but don't but um so i did i mean i was homeless for a while i got a i got a job at sizzler <laughs> Do you know what Sizzler is? is that Unfortunately, a, yes. That's a national thing? Yeah. Okay. I had a job at Sizzler and I was still homeless and I'd you know, go clean up in gas station bathrooms before I went to work and then I saved up some money. Then I got a small apartment and six months later was able to get a little bit better apartment and you know, started paying bills on my own for the first time. And yeah, I mean, I was... I got better with that stuff, but I was always alone. I was always felt alone on the inside, you know, and I would just, I would hop from, yeah, I would hop from relationship to relationship just to try to fill a void. Yeah. You know? I, my first marriage. I was. Yes. So on our first date, I told Roy that I was twice divorced. 
And I said, uh, my first one counted. My second one didn't really count. Yeah. And he said, well, my first one didn't count, but my second one kind of did. Yeah. And um, so this is a first date story. Let's hear it. Yeah. So how old was I then? I was... It sounds like you were in a great position in life to get married, too. Oh, yeah, man. Well, I just, I'm feeling good. I, I got a job at Sizzler. I got my own apartment. <laughs> I'm not homeless anymore. Um, it's I, all relative. I was 21 years old. And I remember I was, I was hitchhiking. Because I hitchhiked a lot back in those days. I don't know why I could have just taken the bus. But I was hitchhiking at a bus stop, too. Maybe I missed my bus, but whatever. It's neither here nor there. Anyway, I was hitchhiking. And uh, this car pulls up, and it's three girls in the car and they, they recognized me from somewhere. I don't, I knew this one girl, it's, I never talked to her, but I kind of liked her. I'd seen her around town at, you know, farmer's markets or whatever. So she was 18 and I was 21. She picked me up to take me downtown Santa Fe, which was like 10 minutes away. Cause I don't know. And we started hanging out and we started, we started dating like right away. Like that day, like we just, we had chemistry. Um, yeah, so we started dating, and then uh, three weeks later, when we were just like laying there in bed one night, just talking. You know how you have those nights sometimes where you're just like, oh, I don't you you're either like you think you're in love or you're so giddy and just so tired and exhausted that you just say and it's almost like you're drunk. Maybe that's what they call drunk love. You know, so and I, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm like a real romantic at heart, so every you know. That's just the way I think. So I just remember I was laying there with her and I, and I just said, you know what we should do right now? This is probably like three o'clock in the morning too. <laughs> you know what we should do right now? We should just get up and drive to, drive to Reno and get married. <laughs> you know, so I said that just because I'm delirious and tired and, you know, this girl likes me. And she said yes, just like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I was halfway joking. I didn't really expect her to say yes, and she said, and she said yes. So next thing I know, we're jumping up, we're in the car, and driving to Reno. Wow. We stopped at the mall and got some cheap little rings. I remember <laughs> on the way home, drove to Reno, got married, dating three weeks. So. Uh, this makes sense why your family was so confused yeah. when they were like, we were going to get married. They're like, wait a minute. We heard this story before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so we wound up staying together for three years. Uh, you know, most of that was because we didn't want, we didn't, we didn't want, we wanted to prove to everybody that we, we weren't the idiots that they thought we were. So we stu stuck it out yes. as long as we could to Stubborn. try to. Yeah, um, but you know, she was eighteen when we got married. I'm twenty one. She hadn't, she hadn't, hadn't had a lot of boyfriends. So what's gonna happen? She wants to sow her wild oats. She she hasn't lived a, a life, and so we eventually, you know, didn't work out, and we got divorced. Um, you know, and I I reconnected with her um, a few years back, and we talked about all that stuff, and like, and I and I asked her like. Why did why do you think we got together so fast? And she, you know what she told me? Hmm. And I didn't know this at the time, but but um she was being uh sexually abused by her stepfather. And when I asked her that, she clinged on to me as a way to save her and get her out of that house. Holy and that, buckets. And that's why she that's why she married me. 
to, to get her out wow. of that situation. I and I never, I never knew that. So you, you know, it just goes to show you never know. You just never know what someone's going through with their what's going on in their life. You never know when you marry someone after three weeks what might be going on in their life. Yeah. But wow, so, you saved her. It's like redemptive of the story. Yeah, I guess in a way. Um, How old were you at this time when you divorced her? 24? Yeah, about that. So 24, you were divorced. Yeah, 24, I was divorced. Now it's probably... Then I then I had like, uh, like a year or two where I kind of like spilled my wild oats and partied and... And then everything got happy, right? No. Okay. We should take a little break in the middle of our podcast. Okay. So we're taking a little break. Yeah, break time. But we're going to hear all about how it got all happy next. <laughs> Stay tuned. Okay. So now you're 24. You're divorced. And then, and then what happens in your young life? Uh, so yeah, I partied for like a year or so. I didn't have a girlfriend for probably a good year, which is rare for me. Like, I always had to have a girlfriend, always. Like, professional relationship person. I couldn't have any gaps. <laughs> um, and now looking back, it was, you know, it was just, I, it was like a safety thing. I felt like if I had a girlfriend, that's the way it should be. I'm safe. Um, I'm not alone. I'm fulfilled, all that stuff. So I always had a girlfriend. Um, so yeah, I, I, I uh, partied for a little while for like a year or so, maybe two. And then I met somebody else and dated somebody else for three or four years. Um, that didn't work out. I was devastated. Um, I moved back home to Stockton for a little while and I met a girl there. And at this time, I think I was 25 or 26 years old. Because, you know, I was, I was still lost. This whole time, I'm going from job to job. I'm quitting job. I'm always losing jobs. Always don't have, I don't have money for my rent. Getting kicked out of apartments. But you weren't homeless again. No. No. Uh, no. So, and, yeah. So I lived for, alone for a while. And then I would live with brothers. And we'd get apartments together and stuff like that. Or I'd get girlfriends. And then we'd live together and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I remember I went back to Stockton for a little while. I just lost my job or something. And my, my younger brother, Nick had lost his job or something. So we wanted to change the pace. And my mom was going through some stuff with her boyfriend. So we thought we'd go back home, help her out and recalibrate or whatever. So I met somebody out there, um, and she got pregnant. She got pregnant, uh, pretty soon after we started seeing each other probably like within a week or so you know we didn't even know each other um very well at all but you know neither one of us were the type we weren't um we didn't believe in abortion and so we were going to give it a go you know we we're going to try this parenting thing on you know while we're trying to get to know each other so it was just like go from meeting someone to Bam, all of a sudden you have to live together and you're going to try to figure out how to raise a baby together and make ends meet and all that stuff. Uh, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was hard because I was having a hard time um, finding work. I remember so eventually I talked to her and I'm just like, I'm going to go try to get reestablished back in the Bay Area. It works a lot easier out there. Um, you know, and, 
and then as soon as I get settled over there, then I'll I'll send for you. So that was the plan. And then you know I got a job, but it wasn't it was hard. It was you know waiting tables at like Applebee's or something like that. I don't remember. But it was just hard. We couldn't we couldn't we couldn't uh, we had a hard time making ends meet. Uh, then I was briefly home, not homeless, but yeah, I guess homeless. Like I was sleeping in my car or, or motels. I remember I moved to, went back to San Rafael, got a job, and I didn't have an apartment. And I remember I was like sleeping out cheap. I'd find cheap motels to stay at from time to time to until I could figure it out and bring her down. And we and uh, you know she's going to her regular doctor's appointments. Everything was looking good on the up and up. She's taking all the vitamins, all the stuff. So that part was good at least. Um, and then remember I was working, and then I got the call that she went into labor. So I went to the hospital. She was a little premature, but not too not nothing to get too worried about. Um, so I went to the hospital, had the baby. Everything looked fine as far as we knew. Um, they wanted to take take him to uh, UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, which is uh, about forty five minutes to an hour away. Only just you know what they told us was just because he was premature, just wanted to keep him like incubated and looked after better. So that's all we knew. Um, okay, so the next day, um, you know, we go to UCSF to go meet the doctors down there. And uh, I remember, we woke, I remember knocking on the doctor's door, walking in, and he just—he's on the phone with someone. I remember he just kind of waved us in, like he continues this conversation on the phone for like fifteen minutes, and we're just sitting there, just waiting. You know, we're not worried or anything because we don't—we don't think anything's wrong. Um, oh, except for he—he he had um, a cleft foot and he had extra digits on his toes. So that was it. That's all we knew. That's what they told you? Well, we knew that oh. when he was born because, you know, we could see it. He had some extra toes? Yeah. Oh. Extra toes. Cute little toes. Um, but that's all we knew. So we, we go in there and we're... So I thought you meant the doctor. I thought you meant you were sitting there and the doctor had extra toes. How would I... <laughs> that's why I was like, was the doctor barefoot? I'm so confused. <laughs> no. Christian. Sorry. No, your baby. What was his name? Yeah, I wouldn't Christian, say baby would, Christian. Christian. Christian Michael Jeter. Um, so when we're sitting in the doctor's office and we're just we we're waiting for him to get off this phone call to see what's going on, or you know, we weren't worried or anything. And then so finally he hangs up the phone and he just looks at us, he goes, All right, so here's the situation. Your son has a has renal kidney failure. Um, and you you need to decide, you know what you what you want to do if you want to go forward with this or not. Like just very matter of factly, no no bedside manners at all. And this day, I remember a smile on his face, and I just wanted to smack it right off of him. Like and I don't know if that was just an awkward thing that he he just he just smiles all the time and doesn't know it, or but like this was brand new information to us. Like we're sitting there, and this doctor is telling us that our son. We'll probably die, and we need to make this decision right now if we want to put him down like an animal or not. Like, and he just has a smile on his face. It's like it was like a bomb went off. It's like it's like our whole world just like the the ground just opened up and just swallowed us. 
that's what it felt like. I just, I just my heart just sank into my stomach. And I just sat there with my mouth open for a few minutes and we just looked at each other and we didn't know what to say. We didn't know what to say. Like, what do you say to that? This is, this is my, our son. I mean, I'm supposed to tell you right now if I want you to kill him or I'm understanding what you're, what you're asking us, what you're telling us. So that was the beginning of that. Um, That was, uh, I know I said my dad passing was the hardest thing, but nothing like, it was nothing like what we went through as Christians. Uh, man, he was so, he was so beautiful. I just remember, man, I was so, so mad and so angry. My sister was a freaking mess. Drugs and a bunch of other stuff. My brother, you know, where we, like I said, everybody copes with stuff their own way. You know, my, my brother was coping with it, with drugs too. And, and they were both a mess. And they both had kids. And they did not appreciate their kids or the fact that they were able to have them. And I was so angry at them, and I was angry at God. Like, why would you give those people all the kids in the world, pop, 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 pop them out? There's a one, one person who loves the shit out of kids and has always wanted kids, and you're taking them away from me. You know, I just remember that, that feeling. It's like, Cruel, cruel joke. And, you know, the more stuff like that happened, the more I pushed me away from God. It's like, if one, if one more person tells me that God only gives you what you can handle, I'm going to punch him in the face. Yeah. Because I don't want any part of a God like that that would put somebody through something like that. And that's, you know, that was my mindset at the time. You know, that's how I felt. Justifiably so. <laughs> You know, I just thought it was cruel, it was a cruel, cruel joke. Why would you give people that are terrible parents as many kids as they want and give somebody who would give anything to have a child and take them away like that? Anyway, I digress. Um, so, yeah, we found out he had kidney failure and it was going to be a tough road, but what are, we, what are you going to say? There's no way in hell I was going to not give it everything, give him a ch fighting chance, you know? My son. Uh, but it was hard, you know, we had to learn how to do dialysis and, and shots. And, he, you know, most of the time he had a tube sticking out of his stomach where the fluid would go in. And he was in a lot of pain and he was uncomfortable a lot. and would fluctuate in weight back and forth. Like one minute he'd be a skinny little baby. Next day you wouldn't even recognize him because he was so bloated and like a balloon. So it was just, man, was, we were spent so much time in the hospital every day, every day. You know, he, he was able to, he was able to come home twice 
and he'd start to get a little better, so they would they would let him come home with us twice. But even that's a process. Like you can't just take a baby that's in that condition just home into a normal house. You have to have a sterile room, like at a hospital, it has to be completely sterile. You have to know how to handle things and open things up where they don't touch anything else and sanitize your hands. Anybody comes in the room, it's, it was a whole process that we had to go through. Um, and set up a room in our house like that, and it was just a oh man, it was so it was so hard, so hard. And you get your hopes up because you get to come home, and then he would get sick, and then you'd have to rush him right back there, you know. The Christian lived to be six months old. He came home. <laughs> He was able to come home twice. Nice. Nice to be able to hold him in our bed without wires and monitors and stuff everywhere and nurses and doctors in the background just to feel normal. Even if it was just temporary, it was just nice. Um, I you know I have a lot of guilt with with that too. You know, Lori, my ex girlfriend, Christian's mother. She was a saint, man. Like, you know, and she had a she had a rough, uh, rough life like me. Like, we came from kind of the same backgrounds. Um. But man, she, she was such a good mom, and she was there every. Day. And she she was better than the nurses at doing the dialysis and all that stuff. Like she she made sure that she knew all the ins and outs and everything that has to do with it. And she was there, you know, every day until it was time to go home and go to sleep for five hours, you know. And my way of coping with with it was kind of like I coped with my dad dying, you know. I I avoided it and I threw myself into work and I would work double triple shifts at. At work, I'd worked like nine, seven o'clock in the morning till midnight, and that was my way of coping with it. Was just by avoiding it. If if I don't have to see him like that, it's not real, you know. God, it was almost parallel the way I was responded, the way I dealt with it, you know. And I remember I'd be at work, and then Um, then Lori would call me or text me. Did we have, did we have phones back then? Oh, <laughs> I think you got to come soon. No, he's, he's fine. He's just having a flare up. I, you know, I would say that to her. Okay. Um, I can't leave work. You know, whatever. And then there was just this, this one day. I got you know I got a call from her, and, and she said, "Roy, you really need to come now." And just like that moment when Mom called me. Those, you know, years ago, it just something clicked in me and it was real all of a sudden. And I just remember the Friday night, middle of a dinner rush at work. And I just remember I went inside the walk-in refrigerator or freezer or whatever. And I just sat on the ground. I just started bawling my eyes out. I just like the floodgates just opened up and I didn't know what to do. And I was just. Never mind. My manager walked in because obviously my tables are getting neglected. 
and nobody knew where Roy was, other server. Um, so my manager walked in and saw me and asked me what was wrong. You know, they all knew what was going on because obviously they, you know, they had to be aware. Like, I had to leave at any time I got to leave. I just wouldn't leave. Um, so she, she comes in and then she asked me what, what was going on and I told her and she just said, what's wrong with you? Let's go. So she left and she took me in her car and drove me to San Francisco, which is, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away in the middle of a dinner rush, took me to the hospital. And I'll tell you that the same exact prayer in my head, God, please, please, I'm so sorry. I'll do, I'll do anything. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just please, please, please just let me get there and say, say goodbye, please. I was praying the whole way, the whole way. I get there and I go to the room where he was in the day before and I walk in there and he's not in there. Oh good, that means oh my bee's getting better. They moved him out of the ICU and moved him into a real room somewhere. Maybe he's just getting better. So I, and I didn't see any nurses or doctors around that I recognized. So I flagged somebody down and I grabbed him. I said, hey, I just, I don't want to see where my son was moved to. He was in this room. And then I remember they went and whispered to somebody else. And they said, and they asked me to come follow them. But they wouldn't tell me why or where. And in my head, I'm still like rationalizing, like everything's fine. and Just like with my dad. And then uh, I just remember walking down this corridor. And there's this corridor, and then there's all these rooms off to the right, and it's all glass windows. You could see into the rooms. I just remember walking down this corridor, and I saw the back of this woman's head hunched over with someone else kneeling down talking to her, and I just saw, like, shoulders shuddering. And I just I knew it was Lori, and I knew... And I knew why. And in my whole life, I... My whole life, I avoided pain. And I ran from it. I would bury my head in the sand. I just never knew how to cope with it, with pain or loss or anything. And that's that was how I dealt with it. I just ran from it. And I hid from it. You know, it's so much, so much guilt and anger and so much, so much that energy affected my life so much soon after that. Soon after that, I was a completely different person than, than I had ever been before. And I was completely changed forever. I turned into a hermit. I wouldn't have friends. I would hide in my apartment alone and drink. And I was... If I didn't have to go outside in the outside world, then nothing could get to me. You know what I mean? I was safe. So, and eventually you do, that, do something long enough, it becomes who you are. You know, and I just, that's who I turned into. I turned into this awkward, anxious loner, you know? To the, to the point to where 
I had a hard time just even being in public. I remember I remember there was a time when I was in public soon after Christian died. I remember I was I don't know, just walking around like a I was like a Cost Plus or Pier One Import store. I remember I was just I was just walking around inside the store and all of a sudden I heard this baby cry. And my heart stopped and it sounded just like Christian and I just I started going through all the aisles like I was looking for him. And I just man, I just lost it. I just started bawling, just ran out of the store. This was this was maybe like a year later or something. Um You know, and instead of figuring out how to deal with that stuff, I you know, I'd get a girlfriend or to occupy my mind or whatever, like thinking that every that's gonna solve all the problems. So that was always my my method. Instead of dealing with you know, they tried to the nurses tried to get us to get counseling after all that. Just never did. You know, and I drank a lot and that's how I coped. Lori just became really angry and would just stay in her room and you know, eventually we split up. We're, you know, we're really close now and we're, you know, we're still like best friends and the bond that we have with what we went through together, like, I love her so much and, you know, she'd, she'd say the same about me. So it, we, you know, we talked many times years later after that and, you know, I apologized to her and I felt so bad and she was just like, really, don't ever apologize. Like, we all, we all did our best, you know. So, so yeah. Um, and then life got happy. No. <laughs> um, no, man. I, if, I didn't do anything to fix anything. All I ever did was work, drink, find a girlfriend, um, you know, and hopefully things will just work themselves out and all the problems will just fade away or something like that. Um, when did you get into uh, styling? Oh, that was, yeah, it was random. So I kind of like lucked into that job. I've always been creative. Um, I've always been into art and music. So I've always had like a creative eye. But um, I was actually, I was in between jobs, my 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 brother's um, ex-girlfriend's her sister was a producer for Pottery Barn Kids Catalog and uh, I was doing a job I didn't like I was delivering furniture and I wanted to get out of there so she had offered to bring me on as an assistant and just to assist somebody so that's how that started and I assisted uh, for a couple years I went up you know, assisting a couple of really talented uh, photo stylists and learned a lot. And then eventually just started getting my own, my own gigs, my own jobs. That's how that started. I did that for 12, 12 15 years, about 15 years, maybe. So that's how that started. Um, yeah, that was fun times, man. I love that job. Um, I had a lot of great experiences and I learned a lot. Traveled the world. Traveled, got to travel the world because of it. So you went from working at the Sizzler and Homeless to yeah. traveling the world in a really, really cool, rather prestigious job yeah. styling for Pottery Burn. Yeah, if I never... and Bucket. I know. If that opportunity never come, I don't... Honestly, I don't I don't know what I would have been doing. I'd probably... I mean, I probably would have been bartending that whole time. You maybe would be owning a Sizzler by now. Ooh, you know? one could only hope. <laughs> <laughs> 
So thank God for that opportunity. Um, because, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to college. I don't have an education, so I had nothing to fall back on. And I was just a, you know, blue collar guy or whatever, you know, I, you know, when, when we were growing up, it wasn't really encouraged um, college life after high school. It was basically like, just because I really talked about it. So it was just like, you know, you graduate high school and then you get a job, you know, or whatever. We were lucky to graduate high or school. Or 500 jobs. Or 500 jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so thank God for that. Um, so then I, uh, I remember I was dating this one girl for a few years and then she dumped me. And I was so depressed afterwards because what am I now? Like that... I always, I always felt like the relationships that I w- was in, that they defined me. Like, if I didn't have those, what am I? Like, who am I? So I was just, so she broke up with me and I was lost. And, uh, man, that was a hard time. And then I remember eventually she, ta- she talked me into uh, joining a dating at Hub. That's a, that's a low point in your life when your ex-girlfriend feels so sorry for, for you, <laughs> you because you're such a loner loser that she convinces you to go into a dating. No, I remember when you and I broke up for a minute, I was the one who encouraged you to go back on the apps too. Yep. There's something about breaking up with you that makes you feel real bad as a girl because you're so wonderful and <laughs> it's like, well, I don't want you, but you should really have some love in your life. Yeah, there's somebody out there for you. It's not me, but... <laughs> So, yeah, so she convinced me eventually I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I signed up for Match.com and then I met my second wife. Yes. Yeah. And then things got happy. No. Um, but, you know, I threw myself into it full on because it's just kind of who I am. I'm just. Yes, I've noticed. <laughs> it's like all or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you basically moved in on our first date. So, yeah. I mean, luckily the pattern ended here. Yeah. Oh, and she, she tried to break up with me a few times in the beginning too. And I'm, I would always be like, no, you're not breaking up with me. You're just, you're just scared. I, I, know, I know you better than you know yourself. That's what she said to me. Yeah, I said the same thing to you too. Oh, man, I've so been duped. So I convinced duped. her to stay. I've been and duped. I, so I'm like, I, I, I see you. I know, what, I know what you're doing right now. You, you know, you're going to stay with me. So you were married to her for ten years, a long time. <clears throat> yeah, that was hard too. I mean, we just man, looking back now, it it still hurts because I, I I do still miss her, and it, it's it's hard because you know we did have good times and we we were friends, you know, um, but we just weren't we were not you know we were both we were both messed up and volatile, so we were two strong personalities that just collided and just did not, it did not work. Um, and we went through a lot of hard stuff too in our, in our marriage. Uh, it was, it was tough. Like we, we, we both, ha- we both had past stuff that we were trying to work through, but neither one of us had the tool to know how to, how to get anywhere. So we would try to get counseling together here and there and she was in counseling. Um, <clears throat> So we, you know, we did the the best that we could, I think. Um, but we had we were dealt some tough blows. Um, my ex-wife, uh, she had she had a lot of depression um, issues and uh, chronic migraines that also didn't help with the depression. And she had she lost her her brother and her her mom like within 
within a year of each other. Uh, her brother was bipolar and uh, also depressed a lot and suicidal. So there was a lot of suicidal stuff that in our relationship. Um, and it was hard. I, man, I, looking back, I wasn't the best husband, but I, at the time, I thought I was. I thought I was. I thought I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing. I thought I was. I thought I was. Um, but it was hard, you know. Like she lost her brother. He 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 wound up killing himself, and it's it was, you know, what comes along with that a lot of times is self blame and self guilt. You know, when someone dies, especially when it's suicide, you just like, man, I wish I wouldn't have yelled at, we yelled, yelled at them the last time. I wish I wouldn't have gotten that fight with them. I wish I would have been there more for them. I wish I would have listened more. Like, you go, you go through it in your head. Even I do. Like, man, I wish, man, I just wish I would have been a better, like, brother-in-law to him or, like, reached out to him. Like, you just go through all that stuff. So she had gotten to a big fight with him the night before. Oh. When they hung up, and then the next day, you know, I get the call from her father, and he told me, so she blamed herself a lot for that. Oh, that's awful. Oh, it was her only sibling, you know. And, uh, you know, all she really had besides that was her father, and he was in his 80s, and it's like, you know, she became really suicidal herself, and I just did not know how, to, I didn't know how to cope with it, and, and I tried my best to be there and to hold her through it, and like you know, I had to keep it inside. I couldn't. I didn't. T I didn't talk to anybody about. It. I didn't talk to my family about it because I didn't want them judging her. I didn't. You know, I, I didn't tell her dad because I didn't want him to worry about her. So I just kind of like tried to deal with it internally. And looking back, that wasn't the best way to handle it. But man, I just felt like my hands were tied, and it was so. That was so much weight. That's that's a lot of weight. Yeah. So you know how I coped with that is like. You know, I held her as much as I could, and and you know, when she was crying, and I just lay there with her and hold her, and, and then I couldn't cry, and and but I was going through motions with that stuff too, and it was hard, but I I wanted to be strong for her, so I wouldn't cry in front of her, and I would just try to be the strong one. But then as soon as she would leave or whatever, I would just like lose it when I'm on my own, and just like there there was there was times, several times when I had to have to go to work. And I did not know if when I came back home from work, if she would be alive. That's how serious it was. Oh. You know, I had to carry that, that weight a, a lot. And it was, man, it was so hard. So hard. Um, you know, and eventually it just took its toll. You know, a lot of times when you go through some hard stuff like that, sometimes you just can't come back from it. You know, like no matter, you know. So, and my way of coping was like, so, like, I would be there for her, but then it was so hard that I would have to have some separation. So, like, I would lock myself in my man cave, and I would just watch sports all day, drinking beer. I'd be in there for eight hours, just in that room, just drinking beer. Or I'd get off work, and I'd go grab some beers, and I'd go sit in my hot tub outside for two hours and put my earbuds on and just zone out. And I would never, you know, she would get upset that I would never invite her out there with me. And I just, I just wanted to be by myself, and that was my way of, like, coping with that stuff looking back like now i see and i just feel like such a jerk for it but i didn't see it that way at the time at the time i just thought like i that's the only way i could cope that's the only way i could regenerate enough to where i could be there for her in those yeah. moments you know um 
so I did that, and then unfortunately, in the end, she didn't. She doesn't didn't remember. You know, me being there for her holding her. What she remembers is me not being there for her, me being in the hot tub, me being in the man cave, and that's the stuff that you remember. Like you know, it's especially when you go through stuff like that, you need someone to blame, and it's usually the person that's closest to you. You know, you're gonna that comes along with the anger. Yeah. You know, so it took its toll and. And that didn't work out. And I was devastated. You know, it was hard and broke my heart. You know, and that's a long relationship I've ever had, too. Um, and it was tough, you know. And it was tough because it was just a situation where we weren't, uh, it wasn't like we got divorced because, uh, oh, yeah, we got divorced. Um, it wasn't like we got divorced because we hated each other or because somebody cheated on another person. So it was. Right. It was really tough, and we, you know, like, so we kept, we kept, like, we got, we got divorced, and we kept seeing each other off and on for, for like, a year, and it was, like, it was tough, because, like, this push and pull thing, and so, you know, we'd hook up or hang out, and then I would get my hopes up, and then, you know, I'd get pushed away again, and it was just, like, this whole thing for, like, a year, and then, uh, yeah, and I was, man, and I was just, I was so heartbroken, and I just... I wanted to fill that void so bad so that pain would go away. So what do you think I did? Find somebody else. You got girlfriends, drank beer, and became a hermit some more. Yeah, basically. And how long did that go? Because like that's not that long ago, and then you ended up in Miami. Uh, we don't want to talk about the girlfriend between Leah and coming to Minnesota, coming to Miami. Cause... No, that's a whole other... I mean, that's a huge... I don't like her. I don't like that story. Well, that's part of my story, though. But, I yeah. think I got to talk about that too. Um, so I dated uh, me and my ex-wife. Still, sort of weirdly dated on and off for like a year. Um, but then I kept getting pushed away. So eventually, I met somebody. You know, I met somebody on a dating app, and and uh, we hit it off. It wasn't me. It wasn't it? Wasn't you? By the way, it's really cool of me. I know it is. That I I can sit here and have a conversation and hear all about your exes and hear you things like, I still love her. I still care about her. Um, Not because I'm a great person, but I feel like everyone should be that way because uh, that's actually a beautiful thing. To be able to hold on to love for people in your past. Um, instead of just writing people off just because you're not married to somebody anymore, just because you're not with them anymore, doesn't mean that you can't hold love for them, respect them, and speak good of them. And I'm not threatened by that. You're my husband. I don't, Mm. I trust you. I trust Mm. that. It's not like you're out hanging out and spending time with and going on vacations with these people, but you know, it's, yeah. It's your story, and it's your heart's love doesn't die. No, I've I've always felt that way, and and, I've always. For the most part, I've always maintained friendships with my exes because I just feel like, you know, if they were important to you at some point, why why would you all of a sudden just never have any contact and just all of a sudden I'm, you're going to hate them because you're yeah. not together anymore and it didn't work out? Right. No, and I know that you, you keep know? that in, in mind when I talk about and talk to all of my exes. All of them. All of them. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that relationship ended yeah. and then you were dating. Yeah. So then I met Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
we can just go less detail on Juliet. Yeah. It, it was, yeah. She wasn't nice to Roy, and I like her, and I want to find her and have a conversation. But anyway. Yeah. But I'm not going to get into too much detail, but it was really toxic, and it, it really messed me up bad. And you know what? Part of the reason why, and I was just thinking about this in the last couple months, it was, it was like I was going through two different heartbreaks at the same time, because I was still going through terrible heartbreak with my ex-wife and then I had the stuff with Juliet so when all that stuff was going on it's like I'm dealing with both of it at the same time in a weird way you know like love's complicated so yeah you're complicated I'm complicated <laughs> no but I, I fell for this girl hard and part of it was because I, I felt somebody that, that liked me and looked at me a certain way and I missed that feeling and it took away the pain of what I was going through with Leah yeah you know what I mean so I jumped in at first and I'm like, this time, I'm going to give it everything. I'm going to give it all of my best. I'm going to try so hard this time. you know. And I did. I tried really hard. And I got burned bad. And I got hurt really bad. And I just remember, I mean, I got hurt so, so bad that it caused me some, like serious physical anxiety that I still, still reoccurs once in a while t today. And I don't even know when it popped up. I don't really know why it's happening. But that happened after all that happened. Like I was so much in knots every single day and trying to go to work and being stuck with these feelings inside and not knowing what to do with them. Just like wanting to crawl out of your skin, you know? And uh, so, yeah, it was tough. So something clicked. I remember it was, I remember I had a moment. I was going through all this stuff and, and, and I was sitting in my apartment one night drinking beer alone watching sports again and something clicked i'm like I, I i can't do this anymore i cannot live like this one more day i'm gonna die if, if i stay here this is my story poor guy he was he had such a good heart he was just he's you know he was just so heartbroken and he had a tough life we're gonna miss him that's the way I, <laughs> that's the way i was seeing it in my head like this is your story is being written right now, and this is the end of it. If you stay here, you're going to be this old, lonely, hermit guy that people talk about and read about. That's who. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that pain one more day and one more second. So I left. My work was slow. I, I uh, had an airline credit that was expiring, and I, I booked a flight to Miami. Man, just at least, at the very least, just clear my head and try to wrap my head around some stuff and try to work through some stuff. Gonna go relax on the beach for a couple of days, and I met you <laughs> the day the day after I came to Miami. It makes me so emotional because I was waiting for my partner, and obviously it's you. And you got here and I had no idea your story. I had no idea how broken you were. I didn't even know until after we'd been dating a while because you didn't tell me a lot oh, of that God. stuff. But I knew that you, you know, immediately you resonated with this little paradise strip of beach with boot camp and sunrises. And I just saw, like, I saw you split wide open and every day I saw what that, experience was doing to your heart and I just thought 
this is for him. This, there's a reason why he's here. And yeah. this experience is for him. This is going, this beach, this people, this sunrise experience that I do every day. It's my job and my passion. It's his turn to come here and be healed. It healed me and grew me and turned me into the best version of myself to date. And, you know, hearing your full story, knowing everything that you were going through and having no idea, it's just, it's even more beautiful because I've watched you heal, open up and heal and let love in and watch what love and and not pain, <laughs> what love and joy can do to a soul. And it's been the most beautiful thing to watch from where I sit. Yeah, I just remember the, man, I know I talked about this on the, the last podcast I did. Um, I just remember the first moment. And I'm sorry, but it, it, it wasn't meeting you, even though that was really special. And, and I know. But the first moment was that moment on the beach, when I, I remember I went to boot camp that first time, and I saw that sunrise, and I, I just remember walking, I remember walking out to the edge of the water, and I just felt, I don't know, I just felt like this peace come over me, and like, I, it's really hard to explain, but it was almost like all these weights. <laughs> And chains were just released off of me in a, in a weird way. That's what it felt like. And I just, man, the floodgates opened. I just started crying. It's like, it's like this release. And I, I couldn't even tell you how many times since that day that that's happened to me. And, and it's almost like, like, you know, like they say, like a, a it's like a boiling pot. Like it's going to seep out eventually. You know what I mean? So in, in the process of my healing in the last year and a half, there was many moments like that where a little bit more would seep out, a little bit more, and a little bit more. And I would, I'd be in the gym working out and just bawling my eyes out while I'm lifting weights. And I don't know what people are thinking when they see me, but like so many times that happened in this last year and a half. And it's all this emotion and pain that is bottled up that I kept inside all this time because that's the way I protect myself. And that's, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast and tell the story because in order for me to really fully heal, it's, it is getting the story out. It's getting my story out. And when I, when I hear it coming out of my mouth, you know, it's like, it's like releasing, it's like releasing the power of, of all the pain. Like they don't, it doesn't have the power over me anymore. You know, when I, when I tell everybody, when I tell all you guys, I have that power now. I, I control the narrative of that now. Like the pain doesn't control me anymore. And I just all those years I just thought if I kept it bottled up and I didn't tell anybody, if I just kept it to myself, then had my hard shell on, you know. Um but you know, it wasn't my time. My time was meeting you. And that was my time to heal. That was my time to to learn and grow. And I I'm I'm so appreciative of, you know, it's it's weird. Like I I think about it daily. Like I still have pain. I still have pain in there, and it's weird. It's a weird balance because I have this pain that I'm still working through, yet I have so much joy and 
happiness and peace. God, I have peace now for the first time in my life. You know, and and I have so much gratitude. And I don't think I would I don't think I would have all this if this stuff had happened five years ago. I wouldn't have been in the right place. I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it. If I didn't go through this this stuff with, with Juliet, if I didn't go through this stuff with Leah, there's no way in hell I would be here I, and I wouldn't appreciate it. If I didn't go through all that pain, I wouldn't I wouldn't appreciate what I have, you know? Well in the 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 ultimate redemptive bow on the package, you know, it's like you're gonna be fifty this year. You came here a year ago, so your life up into forty eight years old. Oh my god! It's a story of pain, and then a year and a half is all it's been since it's been here. And like, what does that say? Like, what is the story? Like, it's like this big long story. We've talked for an hour and a half, yeah. hour and forty minutes, yeah. and then this short little blurb that is the. You know what that tells me? Like my whole my whole life, I've always thought my story was written for me, and I. I don't have control over it. It's just going to happen the way it's supposed to happen. And you're just going to go along for the bumpy ride. You know what I mean? Coming here in a year and a half, I've, I've completely changed my life. I've, I work out now. I'm, I'm healthy. I've run two marathons. I've coached a boot camp. Like I'm in a year and a half. And that is because I changed it because I changed the narrative. Like, I, I did that. I mean, you helped me, but I did it. All I did was to take you to the beach. Yeah, so, <laughs> but you know what I mean, though? It's like, the, that changed everything. When I did the first thing, when I did the first thing, that's what changed my mindset. It was like, you did that, and you never thought you could ever do that. So whoever's telling you all this BS about that you can't do this or you're no good, it's all lies. It's all lies. Like you, I can control anything. From here on out, I'm writing my own story. Like, and that's that is that's so powerful. And I think that's kind of why I wanted to. to that's why I want to help people. And, and I and I, I want to help people be seen. And I want to help people be able to write their own story. Like so many people go through life just like me. My life, my story is not that, that special or different. Like there's so many people in this world with similar stories or worse stories but they go through their whole life and don't realize that they can change the narrative that they can control it well, or, yeah the, the 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 page was turned mm -hmm. you got on an airplane and came here so a big change in scenery a big change in all that all of a sudden you you're you have to look around because nothing is familiar right. and that is where people come to that point a lot and they have a choice to make yeah. To go back to what's comfortable and easy or to say, no, I'm taking the pen. I'm going to write the next story. Right. And in so doing, you do notice, like now you are so empowered to say, what do I want? Well, I can go get it. How do I want to view my past? Well, now I also can look back more and more and reframe the story. I can yeah. look at the people instead of being villains who wanted to hurt me and say they were just doing their best. Right. They were showing up. We were all broken. Like you've said it in this this mm -hmm. story so many times, describing everyone was just doing their best. They were a mess, but they were just doing their best. That takes time to be able to see it that way. Yeah. That takes intentional rewriting yeah. of the narrative instead of these people weren't there for me. I can't believe how horrible to say 
they couldn't be no, there for me. They it, were hurting. It does take into you know, and that's it's like it's like learning anything. Like if you want to learn to ride a bike, like just practicing, you can't just think it and then it changes your mindset. I you know, a lot a lot of stuff behind the scenes went into my growth in this last year and a half, and a lot of it was like journaling and writing stuff down every day on paper and reading it about for, forgiving people and um, forgiving myself, you know, self-love, all that stuff. Just like I have to re- write it over and over again before I could start to believe it for it would stick. You know? Yeah. Because you can't just change 49 years of, you know, bad thoughts about yourself just overnight. You gotta, your, your brain is trained to think those things. To think you're not good enough, to think you're ugly, to think you're stupid, you know, to think you're a fraud. Like you train yourself to think those things, and that's how that's how you're gonna live. Yeah. You know? Well, and the encouraging thing I think that your story really highlights is forty eight years of patterns of running away from pain, coping by hiding, antisocial, mm-hmm. beer drinking, hiding out. In one and a half years, so 48 years, that's a lot. And then this little blip and how much can change so dramatically for the good in such a short amount of time. People think like, oh, I've been doing this for so long, you can't teach old dogs new tricks, or it's going to take a really long time to change, so you don't even want to do it. But you've proven that one step and then one step intentionally without going backwards, look how far you can come. You've changed everything in a blip of time. Yeah. Remember how? Remember how earlier I was saying how I turned into a hermit, and you know, when I when I react a certain way for so for so long, it really mm-hmm. changed who I was, and all of a sudden I was very antisocial and yes, forever I was like that until now. Now I go out, I talk to everybody, I see people on the street. Hi, how you doing? I'm at work. I'm 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 like nice, positive. I'm encouraging. I help people. I, you know, I try to put a smile on people's face. That was never me before. Everybody loves you. No one mm. would ever, ever imagine this story. If I said, "Listen to the story," I'm not going to tell you who it is. They no. would not ever think it was you. Oh, anybody in my past would never. No, that this was no, you. No, this was me. <laughs> at all. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't make eye contact with people walking down the street. I would just look down. I don't talk to people. That, that's who I was. You know. I'm not this guy running around the beach, like hyping people up and dancing in public. And, you know, that's, that was, no, that was never me. Terrifying. Well, it was going to be you. Was, you didn't, didn't know. know. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you could title your story. So I always tell people, you know, if you pick a book up mm. off the shelf and it's the story of your life, and obviously we're all still writing our story, you know, like there's a song, the rest is still unwritten. But, once you take the pen and you realize that you're the author, that's when life begins. So up until that point, I always tell people you're passive. Like you didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your dad uh, and your mom having the problems that they did. You didn't choose the pain you went through with your babies. You didn't choose any of that. You were passive. The story has been written by someone else. It wasn't your fault. Mm. You were doing the best that you could. And then all of a sudden you realized, I don't want to live life this way. You grabbed the pen. Now you're writing the story. Now mm. you are living, which is why you get yeah. joy, which is why you get to experience who Roy is for the first time. Yeah. So if you title your book, what's the end, the little spine, what's the title of that book? I think it's 
it's interesting when we, we can kind of get a grasp on what is my story. I always say, my story is power. When I took the pen, I decided my story is power. And so that is how I live my life. Mm. If you could title the book, I'm going to putting you on the spot. No, I don't know. I would either say something like, this is my book, or I'm the author. That would be the title. It would just be titled, I'm the author. I'm the author. Roy Jeter. By Roy Jeter. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, your story, you told me a little bit about your story on our first date, which is why we were together. Because dating is a hot fever dream. In fact, those sirens is probably somebody on a date right now. All I wanted was a partner who had a heart and a soul that I could access. And you showed me your heart on date one. And it didn't matter that you were broken and here to escape from your feelings and try to figure stuff out. I needed you. And I needed who you are. And I needed somebody to help me with boot camp who experienced what boot camp is and understood it for what it is. And so it so, makes so much sense in hindsight that the universe was like, well, I'm going to bring your person here. Boot camp, not boot camp, but that beach is going to change them. And then now you have your buy-in. Now you have a partner who understands the mission, the goal, and how, how special that is. That's something I never thought the, I could ever imagine finding. I thought I'd find a partner who like would be doing their thing and I'd be doing my thing and be like, oh, how cute your little boot camp. But no, like it changed you. And so it it's, saved me. it's, and that it saved me and then it saved you. And now together, like I have, it sounds so selfish, but I have a partner in this thing where we can bring to those people that come there the love and the joy and the new beginning every single day that it's given us. And it's called redemption. You know, your story, all of that pain, if all of it was just to get you to that beach so that you could live this life yeah. with these people in this place and feel this much joy, it's like, was it worth it? Yeah. Oh, dude, I would do it all 10 times over all of it. It's true. We end up being able to kiss the sword that cut us to say it, it's not it's not easy it hurts we're, we're scars but you can kiss the sword you can say it's not for nothing yeah it's for everything I don't know how to wrap things up exactly, but do you have anything you want to say in the end? <laughs> no, I just want to say, anybody who's listening, if you're going through stuff that you don't see an end to, you can write, rewrite your story any day. Right now, tomorrow, doesn't have to stay the same. Not, not, not for one more day. I know Kristen says that all the time, but it's the truth. It doesn't have to stay the same. No, not for one more day. Not for one more minute. No exciting all right i think that's enough Ooh. i think we need a nap yeah that's that exhausting <laughs> we light up the world yeah we do that's the goal all right say goodbye roy goodbye roy thanks for <laughs> listening
Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. If you want to interact with me, go ahead and send me an email, Kristen at kristensmithonline.com. Follow me on Instagram, The Kristen Experience, and make sure you share this podcast with a friend. That's all I have for you today. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next time here on Destination Begin.